Well, I would uh, invite you to take your Bibles and join me in the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts 22, beginning in verse 22, and we will read all the way through Acts 23, 35 this morning. So we're going to get all the way to the end of Acts 23 from Acts 22, 22. If you're using the blue ESV Bible and the seat backs out there, you can find our text on page 932. And the title of our sermon is The Plot Thickens. And the key words for our worshipers in training are counsel, plot, and offense. We're in Acts 22, beginning in verse 22. I'll introduce it before reading the passage. Uh, You'll recall that the the book of Acts reminds us over and over and over again um, of the global nature of the Christian enterprise. From the very first page of the book of Acts to the very last words of the book of Acts, we learn that the scope of the 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 kingdom of God aims to encompass the entire world. Last week, we saw the Apostle Paul nearly beaten to death in the pursuit of the unifying message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to bind together both those of Jewish heritage and Gentile heritage. The children of Abraham, physically speaking, with the children of Abraham, spiritually speaking. But what we also saw last week, which I suppose you would know because I said he was nearly beaten to death for this, was that the Jews in his day hated Paul. They hated his message and they hated his Messiah. And What we will see going forward and see uh, particularly in our passage this morning is that they aimed to stop at nothing to prevent him from continuing on in his ministry. They would do whatever it took, whatever illogical criminal activity need be to put an end to this apostolic nuisance. That was their goal. And yet, what we will see... um, especially beginning today, though we saw it last week a bit as well, and we'll see in the coming weeks, Paul skillfully navigates and maneuvers his way through the Jewish and Roman legal systems as he continues to seek an audience in Rome and beyond. Again, if you've uh, not been with us, uh, it's worth knowing that since Acts 19, Uh, Verse 21, uh, uh, Paul has been adamant to get to Jerusalem and then to get to Rome. And we could add from his letter to the Romans, we know that he even wanted to get beyond Rome and to Spain. And so Paul is seeking to take this gospel message to, uh, to the farthest reaches of the earth. Um, And Paul's arrest, though, that we saw last week, his arrest in the temple, it marks a turn in the narrative that comprises, uh, for the next several chapters, a string of closely tied together conflicts, arguments, and lengthy speeches, which uh, all extend from, uh, really from 21, what was it, 27, through the end of chapter 26. Um, 
And I'll admit, it's a little hard to know sometimes where to break some of these uh, exchanges up into preachable and digestible sermons. But we're going to do the best that we can. Um, But they all go together very much. And there's lots of talking, lots of uh, monologues. Paul gives his testimony twice. We saw it once last week. We'll see it again in Acts 26. But what underlies all of it, really, is the providence of God. It is the providence of God that is the through line through these pages whereby the Lord Jesus brings His servant Paul from one trial to another, inching him ever closer to his desired destination in Rome. In Paul's speech last week that he made before the the crowd of Jews that had uh, sought to beat him to death, Paul, he sought to explain to them two main things. One was that he had not abandoned the faith of his fathers, but had instead come to embrace its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus, and these truths had been revealed to him by God himself through his Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. But he also makes clear that God had sent him to the Gentiles. Due in large measure, uh, really entirely due to the Jews' certain rejection of the message that Paul was to proclaim. And it was at this point we noted last week in verse 21, he says, The Lord told me, go, for I send you far away to the Gentiles. And then what we pick up in our sermon This week, beginning in verse 22, this is where the crowd interrupts and rejects what Paul has been saying. So, before we look at what happens, uh, I want to read the passage, outline it, and then we will get to work. So, I'm going to read Acts 22, beginning in verse 22, all the way through the end of chapter 23. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizen for this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune was also afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priest. And all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, 
I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part of the Sadducees and the other part Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The, next, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore... You, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and, going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than forty of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent." So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you inform me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready two hundred soldiers with seventy horsemen and two hundred spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, 
but charged with nothing deserving of death or imprisonment. And when, and when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And uh, on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered him, delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. So, lengthy text, um, but we've got three parts here for the sermon. First, in verses 22 through um, 29 of chapter 22, we'll see Paul brought in and questioned by the Roman tribune. Second, in uh, 2230, or 22.30 through 23.11, we'll see Paul brought back before the, the chief priest, the council, otherwise known as the Sanhedrin. So we'll see him before the tribune, before the Sanhedrin, and then third in verses um, 12 and following to the end of the chapter, we'll see um, that despite having no legal grounds for punishing Paul, uh, the Jewish leaders seek to ambush Paul in his life, and yet nothing comes of this. So we'll see him before the tribune, before the council, and then we'll consider the plot uh, formed and foiled against Paul in our third point. So look with me in the first place at verses 22 through 29, where we see Paul questioned by the Roman tribune. The crowd, as we've said, it erupts at the point where Paul declares his mission to take the message of Christ to the Gentiles. They cry out, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be permitted to live. Now, what exactly was the capital crime that he had committed that was deserving of death? Apparently, it was the same crime Yahweh had promised to commit himself. Isaiah 56, 6. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples." The Lord God who gathers the outcast of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. We could, of course, quote dozens of passages that make this same point. That all along, all throughout the Old Testament, there was the hope and the expectation that the, the people of God would include one day the nations. But as we saw last week uh, from 2134, uh, where the crowd shouted one thing and some others shouted another and they just led to a confusing mess, 
The, the people here are not interested in logic. They're not interested in biblical faithfulness. And so Paul's drive to take the gospel, to take the message to the Gentiles, it only infuriates them. And so they call for Paul's death. They throw off their cloaks and they're casting up dust into the air. And they are ready, it seems, for the tribune either to take action himself or to hand him back over to them. But the tribune, is, he's curious. And so he brings Paul inside the barracks um, to which they had walked uh, from the temple. And he plans to flog Paul in order to figure out what's really going on. Quite a strategy. He arrested Paul, the man being beaten to death last week, and now we see him prepared to flog him in order to get more information. And Claudius, like most of the other Roman officials that we've already seen in Acts or the ones that we will see going forward, they're not necessarily openly hostile to Christianity, but they're not particularly interested in justice either, or they're at least ambivalent toward it. They, sometimes they seem to care, and sometimes they don't seem to care. Technically, under the, the system in which they were living, it would have been legal for him to, uh, well, if Paul had not been a Roman citizen, it would have been legal for him to flog Paul, but uh, not necessarily what you might call just or moral for him to do so, having no knowledge of what crime he had even committed. And so Paul's, bo- uh, Paul's body is prepared for the flogging. And remember, at this point, he'd just been nearly beaten to death by a vicious mob, and now he's stretched out to be flogged. Talk about going from the frying pan into the fire. It's a real troubling moment, perhaps, for Paul. And yet, Paul has an ace up his sleeve. And so he asks the centurion next to him, Hey, is it lawful for you guys to go on beating Roman citizens? Uncondemned ones at that? And, and so there's this kind of fear and chaos that erupts in the barracks and the centurion runs and tells the tribune and he comes and he tries to figure out what is going on, confirms that Paul is a Roman citizen and even kind of more legitimate Roman citizen than him because he had sort of bought his way in and, and Paul had been born as one. And so he's, he's afraid and realized that he, uh, he could be in trouble if he doesn't tread carefully. And so that's, that's the, the first point, uh, fairly briefly, but um, we see Paul with the Roman tribune. But that brings us to a second point here, uh, Paul before the council. Because he's not content just to let him go, he wants to figure out what's going on, and possibly he wants to pass the buck back to the Sanhedrin. And so in the second place, we see Paul brought back before the council. Um, And this is how Paul's opening statement goes. He says, Brothers, I I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Well, unwilling to engage in rational, productive dialogue, Ananias, the high priest, commands that Paul, after this statement, be struck in the mouth. Paul replies with a, a sharp rebuke. God is going to strike you, man! You whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? And then this interesting exchange 
occurs, Paul is chastened for his comment, to which he replies that, I didn't know that he was the high priest. And then he even quotes Exodus 22, 28, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Let's be honest. This is a weird moment. It's an odd exchange. It's puzzling. It's puzzling to, to commentators. There's quite a bit of division over how to handle these, this little back and forth here. Uh, the major issue seems to revolve around how it could possibly be true that Paul didn't know that he was talking to the high priest when he gave his zinger. And there are uh, four options as I understand it, and I'll briefly list them for you and tell you which one I think is most, uh, most likely. Um, the first is that since Paul is known to have had some kind of an eye condition that left him with poor eyesight, uh, perhaps at this point in his life, he couldn't see all of that well, and so he simply mistakes the high priest for another regular member of the council, and so he, he makes his comment unknowingly, and so he just couldn't see. Uh, a second option is that this uh, perhaps wasn't a formal meeting of the Sanhedrin. The, the tribune had just sort of called them together and wanted to have a, a bit of a chat, and so the high priest maybe wasn't formally dressed or positioned in such a way that it was clear who was who. Maybe he was hanging out at the back when he said uh, what he said, and so uh, Paul just didn't know who, who said it in that regard. A third option is that Paul was simply lying. Of course he knew who he was talking to, and he was trying to get out. He's trying to backtrack and get himself out of trouble here. And a fourth option is that Paul was being uh, somewhat sarcastic or sardonic and rebuked the unlawful legal official by his comment. Well, we can rule out number three from the start. Paul wasn't lying. It would be wildly hypocritical for Paul, not to say that he's sinless, but wildly hypocritical for him to claim, I have got such a good conscience, brothers, in verse 1, to turn around in verse uh, 5 and tell a bald-faced lie. And then it wouldn't make sense, the Lord Jesus, in verse 11, as we read, says, you've testified about me, keep up the good work, you're going to Rome. So he's not lying. That's third option. We'll strike that one. First option, that he was going blind. It is true that Paul seems to have had some kind of an eye condition, perhaps one that affected him now, but it just seems like somewhat of a contrived explanation. No mention of it is made at all here. It seems odd that Luke would include all the things that he includes here and not mention the fact that Paul actually couldn't visualize and see who he was talking to. Why wouldn't he mention it? Similarly, um, the second option, that it was an informal meeting and he wasn't dressed properly and he was standing at the back and Paul just didn't know. Those things, just, it, they seem like fairly convenient explanations. So that leaves us with the fourth option, I believe is the best, that Paul is... It's a bit of a rhetorical, sarcastic comment meant to make a point. Now, unless, unless you think I'm just out on a limb here, listen to Calvin. 
He says, therefore, subscribing to Augustine, I do not doubt, but that this is a taunting excuse. Neither does it any whit hinder, because plain speech becomes the ministers of the word. For seeing there be two sorts of ironies, one which is covered with subtlety and means to deceive, another which does so figuratively point out the thing which is in hand that it does prick sorer. In the second, there is nothing which does not well beseem the servants of Christ. Therefore, Calvin concludes, this is the meaning of the words. Brethren, I acknowledge nothing in this man which belongs to the priesthood. Paul is calling attention, in other words, to the utter illegitimacy of this man as high priest. How could one, in such blatant violation of God's law, rightly be considered the high priest and to be considered worthy of the respect due to the high priest? Deuteronomy 25, 1 and 2 says this, If there is a dispute between men and they come into court and the judges decide between them, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty, then if the guilty man deserves to be beaten, the judge shall cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence with a number of stripes in proportion to his offense. Likewise, Deuteronomy 19 15 through 21, won't read the whole passage there, but it says, in essence, that a judge shall inquire diligently and only on the basis of two or three witnesses shall a person be condemned. Our Lord Jesus asserts on the basis of those passages in John 7 that the law required letting a person speak on his own behalf. And so Paul is highlighting that for the high priest to order Paul to be struck without so much as having heard more than a single sentence from his mouth, it is an egregious violation of the law. His comment about the high priest being a whitewashed wall also seems to have a few passages in Exodus, uh, sorry, not Exodus, Ezekiel in mind. Uh, Particularly Ezekiel 22 and Ezekiel 13. I want to read several verses from Ezekiel 22. Uh, the longer passage is 23 through 31, and I'll, I'll read the relevant verses here. Ezekiel 22 says this, And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, say to her, You are a land that is not cleansed or rained upon in the day of indignation. Her priests have done violence to my law, and have profaned my holy things. They've made no distinction between the holy and the common, neither have they taught the difference between the unclean and the clean, and they have disregarded my Sabbaths, so that I am profaned among them. And her prophets have smeared whitewash for them, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, Thus says the Lord God, when the Lord has not spoken." The people of the land have practiced extortion and committed robbery. They have oppressed the poor and needy and have extorted from the sojourner without justice. Therefore, I have poured out my indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. 
I have returned their way upon their heads, declares the Lord God. So Paul, again, he he seems to be arguing that a priest who would so blatantly violate the law is not worthy of the veneration of the high priest, but is instead in danger of bringing the curse of God, like the one threatened in Ezekiel, down upon his own head. Which, fun fact, history tells us Ananias did this very thing. Just a few years after this, he was assassinated. Thus, making Paul's words here somewhat prophetic. Paul is simply pointing out that this high priest, who had such a disdain for God's law, had invalidated his claim to the priesthood. But then he goes further. Because he perceives what is underlying all of it, and he perceives further illegitimacy. And he calls attention to the reason why he's actually there in the first place. He says it's because of his teaching of the hope of the resurrection that he's on trial. Now, this should have had no, this should not have been any kind of major issue among the Jews to teach that there was a resurrection. And yet, because of the Sadducees, that there was a a great dissension that had arisen in the assembly. Luke tells us the Sadducees denied the possibility of the resurrection. They denied angels and that there was anything spiritual really that existed at all. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. And so Paul somewhat uses their own hypocrisy uh, to, to turn them against one another. And a clamor is raised as the two groups begin arguing. Some of the Pharisees even stand up and they want to acquit Paul, thinking that, oh, perhaps an angel has spoken to him after all. But the Sadducees want none of it, and so a fight breaks out. And at this point, the tribune steps in. He realizes there's no hope of getting these guys to settle the matter on their own. And he removes Paul from the council, lest a Roman citizen be murdered by this angry mob on his watch. And so it's at this point that Paul's arrest transforms sort of into a protective custody kind of situation. He's still under arrest, but it's a more endearing sort of arrest, lest he be torn apart. And then that night, verse 11, he's in the barracks. Jesus comes to him. And I want to come back to this at the end, and so we'll just make a very brief comment on it now. Jesus comes to Paul himself to encourage him, to give him hope and assurance that he's on the right track. The Lord stood by him and encouraged him, affirming Paul's desire for Rome. He says, the mission's not over. You've got more work to do. So that brings us then to the, the plot that is formed and foiled against Paul in, our, in the third place. Fairly briefly here. It's a longer, a lot of verses here, but we'll cover it quickly. Um, the next day, not satisfied with where things were heading with Paul now that he was in protective custody, the Jews hatch a plot against him, binding themselves 
together to an oath that they would neither eat nor drink until he was dead. Unless they fast for too long, they decide to do it the very next day. There are 40 of them, Luke tells us, and they set a trap with the Sanhedrin. They're there to ask the tribune, to ask Claudius to bring Paul back to the, the, the meeting place. Bring him back for questioning. We really want to get to the bottom of this. That was to be the request. But then on the way there, these 40 men would spring upon them and kill Paul. It was unlikely that they would have even succeeded. And even if they had killed Paul, they certainly wouldn't have escaped with their lives, most of them. So it's not a very well thought out plan. And apparently they talked too much about it. The first rule of an ambush is you don't talk about the ambush. And Paul's nephew heard of the ambush. He relays the information to Paul, who sends him with the centurion to relay the information to the tribune. And Claudius responds with decisive wisdom. He says, we got to act quickly. He calls two centurions. He orders both of them and their companies, 100 men each, plus 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen. Take Paul at 9 p.m. and take him to Felix. Take him to the governor. Uh, Let him deal with it. Run this up the flagpole because I don't know what to do. And then he sends the the message uh, beginning in verse 26. um, Basically just recounting all the details that we already know. Though he sort of spins it in his own favor. It was before, it was... It was after I learned that he was a Roman citizen that I stepped in, and not after I had nearly further beat him. But whatever the case, he lets Felix know, and then Felix um, receives Paul, finds out where he's from, who he is a bit, and says, all right, they're on their way to accuse you. We'll get to a fair and uh, speedy trial. Um, Speedy-ish. And, um, and so he's kept guard in, in Herod's praetorium. So those are the three things. Paul before the tribune, Paul before the council, and, and, and the plot against Paul formed and foiled. But I want to close by considering uh, three points of application from this passage as a whole. And we'll, we'll make one from, from each of these sections. The first is uh, regarding the crowd's rejection of Paul's message. Neither Paul's understanding of the Old Testament promises nor his mission to the Gentiles should have been news to the religious leaders of the day. Consider what Isaiah had foretold in his prophecy in chapter 52. We read Isaiah 56 earlier. Here's Isaiah 52:13 and following. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were, aston- as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human resemblance, and is formed beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Jesus describes his own crucifixion in terms of Isaiah 52.13. He says in John 12.32, When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. John then comments, he says, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And so Jesus and John see that lifted up language of Isaiah 52 as crucifixion language. Now, Pastor Sam, how do you know that John's thinking of Isaiah 52? Well, it's because he quotes it there in John 12. 
Because he says the people predictably don't care about the servant. They don't care about his message. John says they didn't believe in order that the word of Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then he explicitly quotes Isaiah 53.1, just three verses after Isaiah 52.13. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So do you see the parallels? Isaiah says that the servant will be lifted up and so sprinkle many nations. Nevertheless, he would be rejected. John says that Jesus would be lifted up, draw all people to himself, and yet the Jews would reject him. And it's this very passage in Isaiah 52, verse 15, the end of that chapter, that Paul quotes to the Romans in his letter to them, saying that he wants to go to Rome and beyond in the first place. He says, I want to take the gospel message to those who have not heard because God has promised to bring them in. And how would he bring them in? Through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Even in the Isaiah text, life beyond death is expected. He says this toward the end of Isaiah 53, when his soul makes an offering for guilt... He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The the will of the Lord crushed him, and then the will of the Lord prospered in his hand. So it's proof here further that Paul's message of the resurrection should not have been some major controversy to the Jews in his day. But in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, it was. And so we see... The Christ is after the nations. A second thing, we see the comforting presence of the Lord Jesus. Right? The Lord hasn't, doesn't, isn't going to physically appear before you in a moment of need to comfort you. At least there's no expectation for that because what we have is this. We have Jesus comforting Paul. The Lord's words to faithful Paul in the Roman barracks echo out to every faithful witness for Jesus today. Take courage. Faithful saints of the Lord, take heart. The field is ripe for the harvest. We are proof of that here at Redeemer Baptist Church in Rincon, Georgia. How many others does God have here in Rinkin or in Effingham County or the surrounding counties? How many people does God have here that are ripe for the plucking? Who is it that perhaps an encouraging word from the Lord to you through this message today, through Acts 23.11... Who is it at your place of work that's in desperate need of the friendship of the living God that you might tell the words of eternal life? I pray that through this encouragement we may be bold and brave enough to speak to others when called upon. Third and lastly, the providence of God. Right in the middle of this chaos, the Lord Jesus shows up not only to comfort Paul, but to make his purposes clear. Because he does not just say, take courage. He says, as you have done here, so you must do 
there. Now, this passage helps us to see that God uses means to carry out his purposes. He, he uses the desires of Paul to get him from Jerusalem to Rome. He uses the hatred of the Jews to get him from Jerusalem to Rome. He, get, he uses the ambivalent wisdom and justice of the Romans to get Paul from Jerusalem to Rome. But he gets him there. God, through it all, is inching Paul, as we said at the beginning, closer and closer to Rome. And with him, the gospel message. The stone, brothers and sisters, that struck the statue of the kingdoms of earth is becoming a mountain that will swallow the world in glory. This is the hope of Acts. This is the hope of Acts. This is the hope of all of Scripture. And it's in that hope that we now turn to the Lord's Supper.